our keys, our glasses, our sanity. I mean, I wouldn't know what it's like to lose my sanity because you can't lose something you barely had. Oh, goodness. Um, so, uh, I, uh, growing up, uh, one of my favorite uh, things to do uh, as a kid, we used to do it all the time. I remember my brother and I, we would go to bookstores with my parents all the time, and we would sit, uh, and th- this is back when they used to have bookstores in malls. I know this is Montana, so a mall is a building with a bunch of stores in it and a hallway, and teenagers would hang out there and be annoying. Um, until I was a teenager, and then they had a brief period of awesome, and then they went back to it. Um, so uh, when I was a kid, we used to go to uh, we used to go to these bookstores, and we'd sit there, and we would my brother and I and my sister sometimes I think we would sit in the bookstore on the floor, and we would read comic pages, you know those little comic books like the Garfield comics and the and and the one uh, that is a a perennial favorite of mine that I think uh, it kind of breaks my heart because younger people don't really know it, and it, it's maybe going to be a little more obscure in the years to come, uh, is, uh, is the Peanuts cartoons. You know the ones? Oh. Um, my very favorite uh, Peanut comic uh, involves uh, Sally, who is Charlie Brown's younger sister. And uh, Sally was going to the park, and the kids at the park were bullying her and beating her up and pushing her around, and they finally pushed her to the point where she was no longer willing to go to the park. And it was not only in the comic strips and the books, but they actually had it in the TV series, which was not good, but I didn't know at the time. Um, And and I have this this panel, and I don't know if you can read it from there. I definitely can't read it from here. Hold on, let me. Uh, So Sally is talking to her brother, Charlie Brown. She says, "Those those kids over at the playground think they're so tough. Well, I'm not going to start, I'm not out to start any trouble, but I'm also not afraid of them. I'm taking the advice of Theodore Roosevelt, speak softly, and carry a beagle. (laughs) And from that point forward, she begins to carry Snoopy with her everywhere she goes. And she goes into the park, and the kids start to bully her, and Snoopy growls and attacks them which apparently is a whole thing that you were able to put in comics back then. I don't think you could do it now. Um, And it works so well that the kids leave her alone, and she's able to enjoy the park. And like all human nature, like all humans, because one of the things that that, that Charles Schultz did well is he observed people very well. And so when people are in a position where they have power, they naturally stop right there and are content. Nope, (laughs) because what Sally does is she realizes that she has authority and she can get what she wants. Having gotten permission to be in the park, she begins to pick on the other kids using her beagle. She stops speaking softly, and I think there's actually a strip, if I remember right. It's been, well, 15 years since I was a little kid, so (laughs) I only remember sort of. But if I'm not mistaken, she revises the statement and says, "I, I feel like Teddy Roosevelt had it wrong. It's speak loudly. And carry a beagle. And, and finally, she gets to this point in the last strip in the series, if I remember it right, she goes to the sandbox, and there's a kid playing it, and she's like, get out of the sandbox, it's mine. And she puts the dog down and starts threatening this child in the sandbox. And the dog, Snoopy, right, like all good dogs, 
immediately finds something else to do and wanders away. And so Sally is there threatening and carrying on, and the smaller child in the in this sandbox proceeds to beat the ever-loving tar out of her. And, like, there's this moment where she turns around and she realizes the dog's gone. You know what I mean? Y'all ever... Well, nobody has that happen now. Um, but, but you know, like, I, we all had that one big friend we, we ran around with that kept us safe. You know, every once in a while they weren't there, and you're like, uh-oh, it's going to happen now. Um, the... Uh, and I love this because as we dive into Psalm 30, this is, um, I, I went over and over and over this, and I kept coming back to this comic that speaks softly until you get too much confidence and then get in trouble, right? We're going to come back to that. Now, we're going to pause here. We're going to jump to Psalm 30. Um, Psalm 30 is, uh, so the Psalms were arranged, originally written earlier, and then arranged into the form we have today during the exile, like many, many, many years after most of them were written. Some of them were probably written in the exile as well. Um, but they were put into the, the book we have, like, like glued together, finally, um, by probably Ezra, right? And um, they're ordered... In like if you look and you follow the Psalms, a lot of times they're in themes or you find consistent topics or you find like, oh, these are all laments or these are all praises or these are all. And so like um, Psalm uh, 23 up through 30 have a bunch of common things happening. Uh, the idea of sojourn, like traveling, right? Like, in, and that's a big theme in Jewish theology. Right? We're moving around because that was basically everything from. Uh, Egypt to the promised land was wandering around, right? Um, they're like my kids. It took them 40 years from get to point A to point B. Um, and then uh, the other big theme that we see in these later 20s is the temple, right? The temple is mentioned over and over and over again. In Psalm 28, we see where, uh, like, uh, the guy's praying, and he's asking for God to hear him. God, why are you silent? Why don't you hear me? Why, you know, why, why don't you answer? And he talks about facing the temple and praying. And it's probably written during the exile, during a time when the temple no longer existed, but they would pray in the direction of the temple. Daniel does it, right? When you read the book of Daniel, he gets up to pray in the morning when it's illegal to pray, and he faces the temple, which isn't even there, and he prays, Right? And, and so they would face the direction of the temple and they would pray in a reminder that we have the temple or we had the temple, that God used to be with us. And you've got to understand the temple is a huge deal to these guys. And it is a huge deal because it is the place that you met God face to face. It is the place where you got to commune with God. Once a year they would do this big sacrifice and you would get to eat like of the sacrifice and it was you communing with God at Passover and remembering that God um, passed over his children and wiped out the firstborn of Egypt as a way of escaping from you know, slavery. I mean it's a big deal. The temple is the thing. The Holy of Holies is there, right? The Ark of the Covenant where God's glory would be manifest on the mercy seat between the two angels, right? Like, God's glory was there. When they dedicated the temple the first time, God's glory filled it, and you couldn't go near it because it was, like, crazy, crazy intense. Um, and so, like, understand, the temple is a big deal, and these psalms all sort of relate to it. Um, so in Psalm 28, God is silent, and I face the temple to pray. Psalm 29, we did last week, right, is the shock and awe psalm. Psalm? 
None of y'all are old enough. I'm not old enough. I had to read about it in a history book. But at one point in time, there was a term, shock and awe, when the Iraq War, Second Iraq War started, right? They shock and awe was, was how they, in, you know, that was the plan. We're going to attack with shock and awe, and it'll be so much, so much all at once that it'll terrify the enemy into, like, paralysis. And, like, if you read that psalm, that's kind of the idea. Like, God speaks, and the earth shakes. The mountains, like, rumble and earthquake, and it's like a, like a calf leaping out of the stall. Or I, I prefer, again, you know, you're branding them, you're kind of sitting on them, and you get up, and what do they do? They bounce off, right? Like small children with 300 pounds of weight behind them. Um, and so, like, in this psalm, um, like, God is speaking, and the earth is shaking, and there's, there's thunder and lightning, and it's very, very frightening. And, like, this loud crack happens, and everybody in the temple cries. You want to say it? I bet they said it better than that. Let's try it again. <laughs> Not happy, brother. All right. Go to your room, young man. <laughs> All right. All right. One, two, three. All right. Even better. Come on. <laughs> One, two, three. Because they were astonished. They were terrified and like inspired and overwhelmed by God's glory in his voice at that moment. Right? All in his temple cried, glory! See, that's how you do it. And so we're going to jump into Psalm 30. And Psalm 30, like the commentators say, like, hey, this one kind of boils it all down. Right? Like there's a little bit of everything from the preceding ones. Um, and we're going to start with, actually, Psalm 30, verse 0. The Psalms are unique in the Scriptures because they have verse zeros. Um, the titles for the Psalms are not given versification. For whatever reason, the monk who did the titles, or did the versification, like in the, these were not original. It's not like Paul was right, and he's like, all right, now put a three next. And then we'll go on with the letter. That wasn't there. That was added much later by a medieval monk. Um, and the versification uh, does not include the titles uh, for whatever reason. They are ancient in origin. Um, there's a b- bit of a question mark as to when and where and how and why, but they are ancient. Um, and so Psalm 30, verse 0, a psalm, right, which is sort of a given, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. Now, um, the phrasing here like sort of implies that it could be the palace, or the temple. Most um, commentators say, well, because of the arrangements, because it's temple, 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 and this fits with some other stuff we find in the scriptures, right? It is almost certainly temple that it's translated. Like it's the house of David, right? And the assumption then is dedication of the house, meaning the house of the Lord, because the word they're used for house is oftentimes is more often than not used to refer to the temple. And then of David is another subtitle associated with the psalm. I know it's a lot of stuff. Once we start the deep dive, you can ask about stuff like this, and I won't talk about it in sermons anymore. But I read a lot about this, and you're going to hear about it. Um, so, one to three. By the way, we are running a little late today, and it has everything to do with all of this messing around with birthday nonsense. One to three, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. 
Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. The word there is Sheol, meaning the grave, right? And it is not, it is not um, from the brink of death. We talked about that in a previous psalm where, like, the psalmist was probably not dead but, like, mostly dead. Um, In this instance, like, from the realm of the grave, from Sheol means, like, I was straight up dead, and you brought me back with a, with a miracle pill. No, just a miracle. Um, you spared me from going down to the pit. All right. So um, oops. Uh, what is going on at this point is like he's beginning with this praise, and it is a praise pointing back to something God has done. It's important, right? Because as we go forward, he's going to start to unpack what exactly happened. Um, and we end up doing a lot of guessing as to what happened. A couple of big ideas here, though, is, number one, there's a little bit of wordplay in the, you lifted me out of the depths. You did not let your enemy, or I exalt you, you lifted me out of the depths. Because exalt literally means to lift up and away. And then, like, lifted me out just means to lift up. And so, like, the words are very similar. And so, like, if this was a poem, this would be where the words kind of sounded the same. And there's, like, sort of that rhyme thing. You all know what I'm talking about? Uh... I don't rhyme, at least not all the time. <laughs> Dad joke. Um, that's next week. Sorry, it was a preview. Uh, I called you for help and you healed me. Um, the phrase you healed me uh, is actually not that unusual in the Psalms. You healed me sometimes refers to you restored me or you like took my sin away or whatever. But you healed me here. Like a lot of people will read this and say, well, this might refer to a, uh, a sickness, right? Like I was dead, like sick, and you brought me back. Um, it's difficult to say exactly what's going on there. Um, I would say that uh, there's an awful lot of poetry going on, and it's a huge mistake to try to overread poetry. Everybody consider that fair? I mean, we could English class this. Do you want to? No? I know Dwayne does, but <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. You were an English guy. I was, um, <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Oh, I, uh, I love this. So this is that I'm trading all my sickness, I'm trading all my pain. J- John coughed when I said sickness, by the way. I don't think he did it on purpose, but I was wondering if anybody would do the Sunday school like motions or coughs or whatever. Um, but this is, um, this is a huge deal. Like, like I get mad at my kids. I, it's funny that Josh is nodding confidently. And there are times it is very difficult for me to step from one point of angry to not angry. You all get what I'm saying? So I was angry about something the other day. And then... About an hour later, I was asked, can I play Xbox? And my answer was, absolutely not. I might take it out of the living room altogether. Was that fair? Not really, because we had resolved the preceding issue. I mean, it was fair in that instance, because I'm not wrong. But, like, there are times that your anger carries over and holds on, 
and it taints your behavior in relation to your kids or your wife or your husband or your neighbor or whatever. And sometimes, actually, I had a fight with Abby to get her into the shower this morning. Um, I, I, I threatened to use the chisel to break off the dirt instead. But I walked out of the house frustrated. I walked in the door, and the first thing I did was bite Jeremy's head off. And then, a little while later, I bit his head off again, and I think I did a third time, and then he stayed away from me, which means he he learns a little quicker than my kids do. Uh, And I am still sorry about that, Jeremy. It wasn't your fault. I was being a jerk. Um, Anyway, which is sort of my natural state. So, God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger lasts a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. The the moment this makes me think of is when Jesus is there with a man with a crippled hand, right? And this man has got this crippled hand, and he can't move his fingers or anything like that, and he's about to heal him, and one of the Pharisees in the room says, Hey, hey, wait a minute. It's Sabbath. You're not supposed to work today. If you work, it's a sin. And Jesus looks at the guy, and he gets, like, he he asks, actually. The first thing he does is, wait a minute. Is it better to do good or do evil on the Sabbath? And nobody will answer him. Right? Like, because they know healing on the Sabbath isn't actually forbidden. They're just screwing with him. And when they won't answer, Jesus gets angry. And the way that the phrasing is, right, in the New Testament, gets angry, um, it's not in the long term. It's an angry that is instantly faded away. It's a passing anger. But he is outraged at their response because they will not acknowledge that healing this man glorifies God, that doing right is, the, like, is acceptable on the Sabbath, that is what the Sabbath exists for, is to be God's people Because they're so rigid in their understanding of the law. And so what Jesus does is he gets angry. And then what he does then, like the anger passes, and he turns around and he forgives the guy's sins and heals him, and his hand works again. And so Jesus takes this moment of anger, and instead of pouring his wrath out on the children, I mean on the Pharisees around him, and maintaining his anger, his anger passes, and he glorifies God. All right, dads, moms, this is maybe the model we're supposed to follow. Just a side note. We're to, like, show favor when our anger is there. But God, that is the model that God brings us. His anger lasts a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And actually, I was reading, I listened to a part of a sermon from Chuck Colson this, this morning, um, um, and I, I had to hunt down a quote because I wanted to use it, and I just realized that there's another quote in this list I grabbed up that applies here, and I'm going to share it here a second. There are times when we weep. Anybody have this experience? Really, nobody weeps? Um, There are times when we experience pain, when we experience frustration, when everything seems just as broken as it's going to get. And Chuck Colson, um, one of the quotes I came across this morning, suffering is rightly called the school of faith. For For it is only through trouble, difficulties, and setbacks 
that we are brought to the end of ourselves. The normal human tendency, particularly for strong-willed people, any of y'all? Watch your feet. Particularly for strong-willed people is to rely on their own strength and resources. But then, but when those are not available to us, when everything has failed, when we have to abandon every other hope, we're forced to trust in God alone. Sorrow and weeping last for a night, but joy comes in the morning because in the night when we weep and when we mourn and when we sorrow and we don't have the strength to carry on, when we don't have the strength to fix it or the ingenuity or the money or the power or the anything, we don't have the wherewithal to make stuff right. It's then that I have to lean on the power of Christ and I have to trust the words, right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made complete in your weakness. And therefore, I will rejoice all the more in weakness, in helplessness, in those moments that I can't do it. I'll lean on Him. Part of the reason we experience hurt and pain and difficulty and shortfall and fear and and everything, all of this stuff, is because it is training. And there is an awful reality that training is never fun. But it is training for relying on God. It is training for leaning on Christ and allowing His power to work because when His power works, it is amazing. Is it enough to make you cry out? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's actually because everybody. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Uh, so, you know, this idea like, hey, I've suffered, but God has restored me. I've struggled, but God has restored me. I have like stumbled and feared and everything else, and God has restored me. Now we're going to come back to Charlie Brown. When I felt secure, I said. I will never be shaken. I've reached the point where I don't need the beagle to do righteous, like setting it right. I'm going to put it aside and do what I want and speak loudly and carry an angry dog. And we do this. Actually, we do this with the Lord. Like this is this crazy truth is that we can hit this point where we say um, what God has given me is enough. And look at it. We live in this world, right? We live, all right, I, it blows my mind when my kids say, I'm bored. I, our children have more luxury, entertainment, and toys than the wealthiest people that have existed in history. And that's like all of them. Not the rich kids, it's all of our children have it better than anyone else ever. You can read anything. You have toys that do magic. I, what, am I wrong? I, everybody who's old, I can't speak from experience, but when you look at the stuff that children play with today, it is magic compared to the like hoop and the stick that you had when you were young. Right? The yo-yo. The <laughs> hey, yo-yos were advanced technology back then. You back off. Even Pong, I mean, honestly, not that I was old enough to have played Pong or that I 
you know, in anger, broke the cartridge because my dad kept beating me. Um, but we have so much. We, we live under the protection of a military that is the most mighty thing that has ever stood, like, created by human hands, right? I mean, like, you could shoot missiles at us, and we can knock them out of the sky. It is amazing. We're actually discussing fighting for the moon. Like, once upon a time before I was born, and probably not before Craig was born, but he's not here, like, we were racing to get there first, and now we're talking about fighting over it. It's crazy. We have everything. And a lot of times we back up and we say, I will never be shaken. I have it all. I've done it all. We can do anything. And in reality, that is foolishness. It can never, ever, ever be true. And last year is the best demonstration of that, right? I don't want to get into the politics of COVID. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care, okay? But rich stock market blowing through the roof. Whose 401k looked amazing last year? You were thinking, I might actually get to retire. Am I really the only one with a 401k? It was awesome, and everything was going right. Employment was amazing. Everybody's lives were getting better. It was awesome. And then a virus came along. And whether it made sense or not, we locked everything. Whether it was fear or not that was justified, that fear hit. And everything stopped. Now I sort of feel like I need to get a loan at a college level to buy plywood. Where did that go? What happened? Oh, it was the election. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, but you could argue, no. If you trust in your own thing, if you lean on your own comfort, if your happiness comes from what you have or the might of your arm or the strength of your party or who's sitting in the Oval Office or not sitting in the Oval Office or how much is in your checking account or whatever, how big of a gun you got tucked under your shirt right now, your hope will ultimately be shaken. The people of Israel were like in this amazing spot because they had the temple. God showed up at the temple. And there's this great sermon Jeremiah does, right? The people are in sin. They're collapsing under the weight of their own flesh. And Jeremiah is commanded by God, right? This is in Jeremiah 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Meaning, no one can stop us. We got the temple. We got God on our side. It's like walking into a fight with a bunch of preschoolers with like Jackie Chan on one side and Mike Tyson on the other and knowing you're going to win, right? But the thing is, we put God down. We step away from him. We assume it's our arm, our strength, our power and God has a tendency to back up and say, well, let's see how you do on your own. If you really change your ways, 
and your actions and deal with each other justly. If you do not oppose the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods? And follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. I don't think there's a more scary phrase in the scriptures. It's always, but is scary. Like, but God is watching. Oh my gosh. Back up. I realized I didn't read the second half. Um, I will never be shaken. When the Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Why does God hide his face? He hides his face because we make his temple, his house, into a den of robbers. Because we step away from his plan, from his will, from his desire, from his glory, from his righteousness, and we claim power for ourselves that does not belong to us. When that happens, we court disaster. I'm going to read you my Chuck Colson quote that I set out to read. And some of y'all will recognize this. I meet millions who tell me that they feel demoralized by the decay around us. Where's the hope? The hope that each of us have is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people And that's where our hope is in this country. That's where our hope is in life. Our hope, ladies and gentlemen, our hope, brothers and sisters, is in Christ. Our hope is in the truth that we can't do anything our own and that Jesus died for us despite us. Our hope for making our our nation better is the word of God shared through discipleship relationships. It is us acting righteously and bringing our brothers and sisters around us, our neighbors, the guy across the street, the guy across the political aisle to Jesus. It is through the spreading of the gospel that the world will get better. That is it. Nothing else. Everything else is our arm. And we'll discover when we turn around that the beagle has wandered off and we're in trouble if we rely on our own arm, because God will not honor it. It's really political today. I can only do what the psalm says. I'm sorry. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? As a matter of fact, it will, right? Jesus said that. You know, the Pharisees said to the disciples, hey, hey, or said to Jesus, shut your disciples up. Like, shut these people up. They shouldn't be praising you like this. And uh, Jesus said, if 
they don't praise me, the very rocks themselves will cry out. Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. Guys, in everything that I'm going to talk about today, everything I have talked about today, this is the, this is the line. This is the, the section, right? If the world is broken, if your world is broken, if you are hopeless, if you are crushed to the core of who you are, if you are weighted down by your own sin so that you can barely get up in the morning because the weight drags you back, if your depression, which is not sin, if your hopelessness, if your, if your, you know, whatever, like all of it, everything that is wrong and broken in the sinful world, like the only thing that will save you is Christ. The mercy of God through Jesus who carried our sins. And if you carry that weight this morning, if this sermon is cutting you, or if I'm stepping on your feet, it is not my intent. It is, it is just what the text says. But if that is where you are, turn and cry, Lord, be merciful to me. Jesus, save me. Like Peter in the storm, sinking in the water. Jesus, save me. And Jesus reached down immediately and grabbed him up and pulled him into the boat. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. You ever have that moment where, like, your wailing is turned into dancing? I was sitting at Peps a few years ago when the Chicago Cubs were in the ninth inning, and they pulled it out of the fire. And I remember going from mourning to dancing, or I didn't dance. Everybody danced around me. I don't dance. That's, you know. <laughs> um, I've been blessed to see folks do this, where they walk in the door when they first encounter God, when they first step up and say, God, have mercy on me. I can't do this anymore. And God says, I ain't removing the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. And by the end of the conversation, it might take months, it might take years, it might take many years, I find them dancing and saying, I am glad God brought me through that school. I'm glad he taught me these lessons. I'm glad I experienced this. Philippians. Oh, all right. I know he just keeps going. He's at the end of the psalm and he found new passages to talk about. Philippians. This is Paul writing. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content and in every situation. Now, most of us haven't heard this part, right? Whether well-fed or hungry, whether plenty, living in plenty or in want. See, that part actually doesn't exist for the most part. It is, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And in reality, it is not I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It is, I can be content. I can drive through this. I can survive. I can worship in times of prison and hopelessness and brokenness and loss. I can do anything through his strength, not through mine. I love this line. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. In reality, that passage is not about being able to memorize the dictionary or power lift. You see it in gyms all the time. 
In reality, what it is is, in Christ I can endure. In Christ I can praise. In Christ I can pray longer, preach better, serve harder. In Christ we can change this community. We can change this world. But it needs to begin in Christ where we change our own hearts. How many, I mean, like, I don't know where y'all are at. I don't know y'all, like, what happens behind closed doors. I don't know what's in your heart. Um, I suspect some of y'all are right along with me and standing in this spot and saying this is the truth. And some of y'all are looking around and trying to figure out where your beagle went. And some of y'all are riding high. And I'm going to tell you, if you're riding high, it's the very moment you should be praising God and obeying him harder. Because that's when we forget. My challenge for you today, and I think it's the challenge this psalm tosses out, the truth that this psalm tosses out is everything, everything, everything we have, the breath that we breathe, the minutes that we're blessed with, getting up in the morning, having a house over our head, having freedom that we have, having wealth that we have, having everything we have, everything is a gift God has given you. Not something he owed you, not something you did yourself. You did not build that. I'm sorry, I should not have said that. God gave it to you. You may have worked. He worked with you. You may have striven, strived. He gave you the strength to do it. He gave you the wisdom to do it. He blessed you with the moments you have. He blessed you with those moments so you could follow his son and become like him. I think that was Zach telling me I've gone way too long. And I just heard a bell, which means I went way, way too long. So let's close in prayer. My challenge for you guys walking out the door today is, you still holding the beagle and are you abusing it? Has it wandered off? Are you lost? Is your righteousness and your power and your strength and your security and your hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus? Or is it in the might of your own arm? You get another day, you get another birthday, you get another breath because God gives it to you. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for the blessings that you give us. I thank you, um, that you that you sent Jesus for us. I thank you that your grace is upon us, that, that your anger passes quickly, and that, that your blessings last and your favor lasts a lifetime. I pray that you would help us to lean on you, help us to look to you, help us to recognize that everything that we have that is worth having is a gift that has come from your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to close with one last quote from Chuck Colson. And listen carefully. Life is a mess, and theology must be lived out in the midst of that mess. So go out into the world, into the mess, and live out the gospel. Wash feet, love your neighbor, talk about Jesus until you can't talk anymore. Amen.